Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. This will be the last episode from our stockpile before we return to recording new tomorrow morning. Uh, Tom and Trevor have been uh, on vacation and doing some other work, and so we finally are going to get to record tomorrow, so we will return to some of our questions uh, when we record then, and I will upload them shortly. I appreciate all the comments on the blog. We've had some really nice comments from Chase Dietrich, Will Ferris, uh, David Groh, and Matej Chepel. I'm not sure how to pronounce that one, um, but uh, he's, uh, he's written some nice comments. So we appreciate all the feedback that we've been getting on the Facebook page. We've even gotten a few comments on iTunes. So I appreciate all of our listeners who have written in over the last couple weeks. Um, and, uh, and like I said, I hope we get to those questions tomorrow. Uh, in this episode, we will be talking about Basil of Caesarea again on the Holy Spirit. We will look at a few different things, one of them being uh, how he understands the Holy Spirit, most importantly, as is the title of the episode. Um, in addition, we will also discuss um, what is the place of language in theology um, and the nature of apophatic or negative theology, a kind of theology that develops in the East, whereby the most important thing that one can say about God isn't to describe his exact essence, uh, but, but, but what God is not or what God is above. Um, and so we will discuss that a little bit further in the episode. We will always appreciate your comments, both on our Facebook page and on iTunes. When you search for A History of Christian Theology, rate us, review us. We really appreciate it, and uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Um, well, I guess, you know, we di- well, we've already done a podcast on ba- uh, Basel, uh, but we, I guess we could also, you know, I, I don't know, I read a little bit more on his background and was just reading some stuff about his fight, um, you know, during some, m- much of his life, uh, the emperors were uh, Arians, and so he too was fighting against Arian emperors like uh, Athanasius. Um, so there's still a little bit of a period where he was, you know, he had to do his work as bishop underneath uh, Arian rule. Um, so he too fits some of that Athanasian, uh, uh, nar- you know, narrative that at Athanasian uh, line of resisting uh, the Arians who are technically in power. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of surprising he didn't get like booted or anything, but. I, I was reading something about how he talked to Emperor, was it Valens? Valens. Yeah. Valens. Uh, and the Emperor was basically like asking him what he believed. And he actually like said what he believed rather than just say whatever he knew Valens wanted to hear. And he said, he said something to him like, I'm not used to bishops talking to me like this. And he said, then you're not used to talking to a real bishop or something like that. But anyway, something I was reading this morning. Yeah, well, we, we, get, we get a little bit of the character of the distance between the church and the imperial power, which, you know, I guess we talked about the Constantinian uh, compromise, the Constantinian turn. Um, and, you know, even here, though, you could see that that wasn't, you know, that didn't just happen overnight. It takes time, and there's a large period where the church actually resists uh, the imperial power, even after Constantine, which, you know, to me just makes these characters all the more um, honorable, venerable, um, you know, 
uh, both Athanasius and Basel. Yeah, one thing I would point out too is the Emperor Valens, who was an Arian, um, was a subordinate emperor to his brother Valentinian, who was Catholic. And so he was less uh, assertive than Constantius. Uh, you know, of course, Constantius had co-brother emperors who were Catholic as well, but they were more, um, uh, they were kind of more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, querulous with each other. They were more inclined to posture and to fight one another. Uh, not really fight, I guess, but, well, yeah, I mean, they actually, I think, in fact, did fight against each other from time to time. But Valens and Valentinian were more um, uh, together, I guess, for mm-hmm. lack of a better phrase. So that's a little bit about the background. So we wanted to read um, – actually, Tom suggested that we uh, stick with Basel for another week and do his work on the Holy Spirit. Um, we haven't talked much about the Holy Spirit. The last time we left the Council of Nicaea, we mentioned how it had very little to say about the Holy Spirit. And it's basically with Basel and a little bit with Gregory Nazianzen, who we will read um, shortly, uh, that we have a fuller developed – theory of the one usia and the three hypostases, so the one essence and the three um, persons, if you like, of the Trinity. Um, And so Basel is one who helps uh, elucidate that, who really brings out the difference between usia as substance and hypostasis as uh, sort of the individuation of the three parts of the same Trinity. Um, And so... You know, so Tom, I think Tom wanted to bring this out, um, uh, you know, just so we could have a little further discussion about a, an underdeveloped aspect of theology and especially of the Trinity up until this point. Um, the Holy Spirit sort of gets sh- short shrift, I would say, um, until we get to, you know, this t- uh, treatise on the Holy Spirit. I mean, maybe we saw a little bit more of the Holy Spirit with Tertullian uh, as he was a Montanist, was a little bit more into prophecy, um, but that was more or less. Um, put down uh, by the church, you know, and even even Tertullian is considered suspect in some circles because of his Montanism and his connection to the Holy Spirit there. So I guess that's one thing, you know, one of the first things that we could ask about Basel is why does he place such an import on the Holy Spirit? What is What to him is the, the need to write a whole treatise on the Holy Spirit if this is, like I said, sort of an underdeveloped aspect of the Trinity? So there were a few reasons why I wanted to read it. Um, But I would also add, too, of course, that he is addressing in this work uh, various permutations and forms that the Arian heresy had taken. Now, the Arian heresy was focused on the word or Jesus, what, what we Orthodox call the second person of the Trinity. They focused their energies and their attention on that. Um... I think that there was a little more disagreement amongst various kinds of Arians as to what the Holy Spirit was and what role he played. And it seems that Basil is trying to address some of those. But I was intrigued, Chad, and maybe you can help me out here. I had always taken it that the principal Arian view about the Holy Spirit was similar to the current Jehovah's Witness view. That is, that the Holy Spirit is not a person and doesn't have independent thought, but is a force that come or that is that comes from the Holy or from the Father and um, is a part of God in a sense, but isn't a distinct personality. That's what I thought their principal view was, or the principal view amongst Arians. 
but I didn't really see, uh, not clearly, I didn't see Basil really address the issue of personhood. I mean, he obviously believes the spirit is a person, but it's almost like he didn't think of that as an issue, like a debate. I don't know. Do you have anything to say to that, Chad or Trevor? So as I, okay, so for one thing, uh, Tom brought up this point, and I think this was why I have been asking about the question, about questioning the sort of the label Arian, because now uh, the chief uh, opponent that Basel mentions is actually a guy called Aetius, and Aetius had his own variation on uh, Arianism, Arianism, and that's, that's who he's dealing with here. Um, in a couple weeks, we'll deal with Basel's brother, who's going to write the Contra Eunomium. Eunomius of Sisychus is a, also considered a kind of Arian who follows after Aetius, who follows in some way after Arius. Um, so I just wanted, that's part of why, you know, there, I, sometimes it's, it's not always helpful just to broadly state so-and-so is an Arian um, insofar as each of these guys have sort of unique views, not only of the personhood, uh, but but of uh, of the of the Holy Spirit, but have different takes on exactly you know what whether the Son was like unlike you know how these words function you know they have different different takes, but that that ultimately consider the yeah Jesus or consider the Word something less than God. But as I understand it, they consider the Holy Spirit an inner Gaia, uh, the the uh, the action. Um, in some places, it's translated will. Uh, but at least it, our Eng- I mean, the, the direct cognate in English is the energy. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so the Holy Spirit is a kind of energy. Um, is, and that's what's understood by the, um, by the Arians broadly, or in this case, uh, Aetius. Hmm. Yeah, there's the one example I remember in the text of comparing it to uh, a man with a hammer building something, essentially, where... God the Father uh, is the man who then lays out his plans, and that's like the word or the wisdom of God. That's basically the second person of the Trinity who has some sort of mental idea of the plans for what he's going to build in his mind, and then he uses the hammer to do it, and that's like the Holy Spirit. And he so he compares the Holy Spirit to they would or the Arians would compare the Holy Spirit to like the instrument by which. Um, the force, I guess, by which things are done. Okay, I would. It seems to me that the metaphor the Arians would use is that because everything is created through the word, that it's actually the word that is the hammer. So, I mean, I, through, there oh, might have maybe, been a reference. Maybe it was. There might be a reference that I missed that you're talking about, but I do perhaps, remember that. Perhaps it was. Oh, now you're gonna make. Sorry, I'm gonna have to go back. Sorry, I may be wrong because it's not like I mean. I maybe it was at the but, Holy. Spirit. Maybe the Holy Spirit was the plans. I'm trying to remember the now the comparison. Do you remember it, Chad? Yeah, I mean, I, I the, as I understand it, the Arians view him as as kind of the action, the enacting force. Um, okay. Yeah, Jesus would be more maybe of the hammer. Um, but there are there are different views. You know, in, in some cases, it also seems that the Holy Spirit functions as kind of just like a high archangel almost. Hmm. On on some like Aryan esque views, is that right? What you're saying? Because there's there's a whole there's a whole other um, sort of heretical group that's running around. They call them the Macedonians, and it's kind of a long history that I don't remember exactly. It's where they come from, um, but they have different takes on the Holy Spirit. So it's a lesser debate within the church in a way. 
Um, ultimately, I think because Basel and Gregory, Basel and the Gregories, the Cappadocians, they're often referred to, they sort of deal with the heresies in one broad um, swoop. Yeah, I was, all this to say, I was a little bummed that I didn't see more on the personhood of the Holy Spirit, because that's what I kind of came into this text expecting, like a defense of his personhood as opposed to the idea of the Spirit as a force or as an energy, but well, I didn't... So that is the heretical view, that he is the energy. That's not what Basel says. Oh, I know that. I'm saying oh. I, was dis- I was disappointed that I didn't read more on Basel giving a defense of the personhood against that view. Ah. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. He, he did give a defense on... Uh, he, he defended the Spirit's oneness with God... He defended the use of certain terminologies with the spirit. Uh, he talked a lot about the use of pronouns, like because many of the heretics would clearly ascribe certain pronouns as applying to the father or the son or the spirit and made like this rigid distinction between those. Um, but I didn't see him address in any, I mean, again, like I said, he clearly assumes that the spirit is a person. He talks about the spirit as if the spirit is a a person. He uses the term hypostasis of the spirit. So he very clearly is saying the spirit is a hypostasis, but I don't see him defend that. Like what I was hoping to see was this, this exegetical chapter in which he was going through and like drawing passages of scripture, defending the, the personhood of the spirit. That's, I guess what I was hoping I would Yeah, so it's interesting. It appears like, I mean, you know, I'm going to get technical here for a minute. I think one of the one of the difficulties in studying the church fathers is, you know, they're clearly against and we've discussed this a while ago, the idea of uh, the Holy Spirit, the word and the father as being prosopas, being like masks. Uh, without having a true identity. So calling the Holy Spirit a a hypostasis, you know, is in part uh, trying to try, trying to connote, trying to convey that the Holy Spirit has a real, actual existence beyond just an energeia, beyond just an energy. So yes, he both assumes it and he also states it. But you know, there. So, but so that's one thing. So he does, you know, and and you're not denying that. But I'm just going to clarify. That's why he uses this term hypostasis uh, that that was actually considered um, anathema in the earliest. Uh, uh, in the lower or sort of at the end of the first Nicene Creed of 325. Um, So that's changing now. We're actually watching as they're coming to a clearer definition, um, a clearer way to explain the three, uh, the three in one that is the Trinity. And part of the way that they do that, and Basel does this, um, is, is he's going to make a, he's going to say that basically we cannot know God in God's self, which is, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we don't actually know, strictly speaking, their essence. Um, they are all unified in their essence, um, and they, are, they all act. Every action uses every bit of the Trinity. All parts of the Trinity are part of the action in some way. Um, but then there's another sense in which they are also distinct. And, and the, the best the best characterization that I could find for what makes the Holy Spirit distinct um, is that the Holy Spirit is the perfecter. 
And I'm not 100% sure what that means all the time. <laughs> um, but one way that the, 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 I feel like the refrain that Basel was trying to defend was you pray um, to the Father either with the Son or through the Son and in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. And so he's using these various uh, prepositions. Um, and, and actually, they, I think they're expressed purely in the case in Greek. Um, nevertheless, uh, you know, that was, he was trying to figure out, he was trying to say, look, this is how we pray. Um, and we pray with like to the father, through the son, by the Holy spirit. And how yeah. does that happen? Well, the Holy spirit completes our prayer. I can't give a better definition of that though. I'm not a hundred percent sure what I'm saying. By the way, when you said that it occurred to me a moment ago, I said pronoun instead of preposition, please forgive me. He, he spends a lot of time talking about the heretic use of prepositions and how the heretics will say that you can only use that, that, that he, he says the preposition of applies to the father, not he, this is not Basil. The heretics say of applies to the father, uh, through applies to the son and in applies to the Holy Spirit. He then goes on this long discourse about how that's a misuse of prepositions that they're interchangeable. And he uses a number of scriptures to show how through and in are used of all or of through and in are used of all of them. And he gives these definitions of them. So it just occurred to me that I said pronoun, which made no sense. Mm -hmm. So I apologize. Um, Although your your point about prayer, I'm not disagreeing with you necessarily on that. I'm just saying that he, he actually was addressing prepositions in a deep theological sense. He was saying that the heretics, whichever one's, in particular, he's addressing whether it be Arians or Etius or um, you know you know one of the other guys of the time. Uh, they make much ado when talking about the nature of the beings by saying their role is corollary to these pre- these prepositions. I almost said pronouns again. Uh, I hate. Um, and so they spend. A, he spends a lot of time uh, really addressing that, which I thought was. Very interesting, and I appreciated it because it seems to me that modern exegetes, preachers, pastors will spend a lot of time and make much ado about little words um, in uh, in the text. And when you think about it, of course, if you apply the principle to Scripture that you just that that that, that Scripture is using normal human language, you realize, oh yeah, we interchange prepositions all the time, right? right. Yeah. Well, and as Tom said, the, it's a theological basis, and that's what I was trying to express, although it's not even 100% clear in Basel, or, uh, you know, at least the language is difficult, because there is a, so for, for as I understand it, for Basel, there's a theoreia, there's a kind of contemplation of God and God's essence that is ineffable, that is inexpressible, um, and in that way, you can you can kind of be united to God and God's essence, um, and be you know know him in that way, um, but you can't say precisely what is going on. And so then there's also this sort of economia, um, this this God in the world, God in action, um, and that's where you can use various prepositions, you can use various language, and you can recognize God um, and distinguish God and God's action. Um, from various other types of false notions about God. Um, and so this is where the Cappadocians will straddle uh, what we call uh, apophatic theology or the, the way of negation, um, because ultimately uh, Basel 
Um, and, and really, Gregory of Nyssa believed that God and God's self is in a way a sort of darkness um, and, and that only, is, only can be understood uh, through a deep kind of, of contemplation. Um, but Well, I mean, I, that's very consistent with the apostles' writing. I mean, you look at John in chapter 1 of his gospel, right? I mean, he says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son has declared him. You tie that into uh, into the Old Testament and its and its stance on the visibility of God. It, I think by metaphor they associate visibility of God with the understand uh, understandability. That's not very uh, comprehend. What's what's the word I'm looking for? Comprehendability. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, just the ability to understand God. It seems that they make that a metaphor. That they say, look. The Old Testament tells us we can't see God. By metaphor, we cannot understand God, uh, or that means we can't understand God. But we can see Jesus, and we can see the operation of the Holy Spirit in the world around us. And we can understand Jesus because we can see him. And we can understand the Spirit because we can understand his operation. I, you know, you, you use the word oikonomia, which is the Greek word, uh, you know, which is used all the time. Uh, in the fathers, the guys that we've been writing. I mean, Tertullian made ample use of it, right? This, like Chad just said, this, this action of God in the world, the economy of God in the world. And so we can understand those things. And then because we can understand those things, because we can understand the son and because we can understand the spirit, we can understand God. Well, and even there's a sense, there's also an ineffable sense of the Holy Spirit and the Word as well. They, there is a sort of, there is a them in action that we can understand, but even in their essence, they too are part of the unknowability of God um, in God's essence, um, you know. But I, I only, you know, I know that this is, sounds a little, it sounds a little esoteric, it sounds a little difficult but it's, it's also part of what they see, and we'll definitely get this with Gregory of Nyssa and the Contra Eunomium, where uh, Eunomius and Aetius, they want to say there is one perfect word that describes God and God's essence that's absolutely knowable, usable, and it is the only correct word for God. Uh, in a way, uh, these uh, Neo-Aryans, if you like, think that there's only one word for God, and it's actually a Greek word. And the only way to properly speak of God is to speak Greek and to say agenitos. Um, and and there's o- that is the only way. So it's no surprise uh, if, if Basel is characterizing them correctly that they're going to press these prepositions into their service um, and say that there's only one way to use these prepositions properly. And, and this is why they've been you know, as far back as John Henry Newman in the 19th century, um, the Aryans have been called a kind of literalist um, because they they sort of have a fixed view of these of these prepositions and say, no, 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 you can't interchange them, you can't use them differently. Um, and Basel is saying, no, there's there's some way in which you can't actually know God properly and speak God abso- about God absolutely. And this is where the apophatic strain uh, begins, uh, which we'll see it's maybe its culmination in uh, Dionysus, the Areopagite, which we'll get to a little later. Um, and, and there's even a great uh, medieval scholar, um, John Scotus Arugina, uh, who is, is kind of apophatic. But um, yeah, but th- that gets, that gets real fun. Remind What's us that? of what apophatic Remind us of what apophatic means? Yeah, so apophatic is also called the way of negation. So it's basically, you can't say what God is, 
but you can only say what God is not. Or you could one way that it's done, like God is not just good as we understand it, but God is like super good. <laughs> um, uh, but but basically the idea is um, it's basic, you know, it's just that you can't say with 100 percent certainty what God is is um and and this is not to say you know the 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 easy thing to push back on and people have is to say that well then can you know anything about god and i think what basel and what gregory are trying to do is do a delicate dance where they're saying don't be overconfident about your words and about your language such that you have absolutely the only right way to speak um but also don't be too afraid to recognize that god uh, you know, might do some things and not others. Um, and so, you know, again, this is describing God and God's action, uh, but maybe being somewhat um, humble about how we discuss God and God's essence. Uh, and I think, I, I think that's a, a very interesting way to, to, to straddle this difficulty. And it also has really deep roots in ancient philosophy because essentially someone who is taking the Aryan position is adopting more of a platonic view of our use of certain words. So for example, what you're talking about, how they have this one word that they want to use for God. And they say, this word is the proper word because this picks out God. This is in line with Plato's idea that we have some nouns that we use to actually pick out the very essence of something. And if you basically learn how to get closer to or discover basically the proper word used. You can like literally perfectly describe something. He would actually say, for example, you know, when we're using words like beauty, it's not by accident. It has completely to do with the essence of the thing that we use the word beauty. But Aristotle came along and said, no, 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 no. I could come up with any name and it's pure convention. And so he was the first one to basically say, no, names for things are mere convention. That's it. I could come up with another name. It'd be just as useful as this name. I'm not picking out the essence. And a lot of this dispute, we don't know if this was only through, um, you know, theological training and reading other people's theology who, who those people read philosophy or whether Basil was just reading a lot of philosophy himself. But it seems like he's basically – kind of taking more of the Aristotelian view when it comes to, um, yeah, I guess the names, but also the names in relation to proposition or the pre- prepositions. Yes. <laughs> uh, Another one I always can. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it does have, cause we kind of like, you're framing it in this, um, you know, negative theology way, which, which what do you would you keep calling yeah, yeah apathetic i've i've heard it called negative theology as well but and that it and that is a good way to frame it and we do see that more like in the medievals of course but like um this is like Certainly. the philosophical the tension at the bedrock of it well one thing i would also say and chad correct me if i'm wrong but you mentioned this group that basil is addressing uh who referred to god as agenitos um, when they say that, it sounds like to me almost, I mean, I don't want to, I guess, question their, um, platonic credibility. That is their credibility is good, devoted Platonist. <clears throat> but it seems to me that that choice of a word is almost a pop shot 
against Nicaeans because by defining God as agenitos, by selecting that word as the one word that defines his nature, um, you are essentially like in a very upfront way saying Jesus, because Jesus is genitos. He was generated. That is, he was born. I mean, agenitos kind of means unborn because Jesus, Jesus was born because he's referred to as the only begotten. You are by definition precluding Jesus from the Godhead. You're like, you are using a term that does not allow Jesus to be God. I might be wrong, but what would you say to that? No, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, that, that, that absolutely seems to be the force of it. Um, and it's also, you know, I mean, to me, it's like there's – I'm trying to on, – on the one hand, I'm almost sympathetic uh, to Eunomius and Aetius – like they're trying to say, but no, we want to get the word right. We want to be sure we're saying the right thing about God. Um, we want it to be clear. We don't want there to be dispute. We think we have a really good word for this. Um, and 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 maybe you know maybe the the Eunomians, uh, the Aeti, the the Eunomiuses, the Aetiuses, the Arians of the world, you know, they have a real concern. Um, if we don't have only one word for God. Uh, then how can we be sure when we speak uh, with the Jewish people, say, that, that they're talking, or, you know, that they're not talking about a different God? Um, how can we be sure that we're distinguishing uh, between the various, ki- the various gods, the various words that people use for God? Uh, and so, you know, so on the one hand, they have a very real concern, uh, I would say. On the other uh, I think that Basel and uh, Gregory have a very elegant solution to the problem, which is both something that I would recognize that God, there's a, there's a, there's something about God that is unknown and they want to protect that. Uh, but they also don't want uh, language and confusion to reign. They're not trying to get rid of all rationality or, um, you know, precision with speech altogether. Uh, they're, they're just holding it a little bit looser and saying, well, we can talk about God and God's action, uh, but it is really difficult to say precisely what happens in God's essence. Um, and that is kind of a, you know, in a way, a more mystical path anyway. So I, I'm, you know, on the one hand, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I don't think the Aryans were just evil, awful, angry people. I think they were really concerned. We should have one word for God. Um, you know, this is like, I mean, this may be a little, uh, in a little ways, unkind, but but is actually true about uh, Muslim people. There is only one word for God in Islam, and it is Allah, because there is only one language um, in which God speaks and in which the Quran is written, and it's Arabic. And that's the way that they've chosen to do their theology is in one language. And actually, what uh, Basel and Gregory preserve uh, is the inherent translatability um, of the gospel, the inherent uh, way to say. You can know God and God's essence and who God is without speaking one peculiar language. Um, so, you know, so there's even a kind of, um, you know, preservation that they're doing that I think is something at the core of Christianity, which says, no, it's not, it's not located in one religion or in one region. It's not located in one language. It's not located in one time. It is eternal and timeless. Well, that really is the distinction, I think, of the ancient religions. I mean, 
when I when I stop and I reflect on all ancient religions, they are all ethnocentric. And I'm, I don't mean that in the way, I don't mean that as an attack on all of them. I'm not trying to say uh, Muslims are bad because they're distinctly Arabic. I mean, obviously, these religions have, to varying degrees, proselytic inclinations, meaning that the various religions, to varying degrees, do try to bring people inside the fold. But when you look at the uh, most of the religions of the world, uh, definitely the old religions, uh, the ancient ones on up into the Middle Ages, the ones that are formed in those periods, they are all distinctly ethnic. That is, they tie the religion down to a specific people group and a specific language. This is true of Hinduism, which is distinctly Indian, of Islam, which is distinctly Muslim, of Judaism, or sorry, which is distinctly Arab, of Judaism, which is distinctly Jewish. Christianity comes in and describes itself as Catholic. That's why it's a little tragic that we Protestants have lost the use of the word Catholic because it was such a definitive term. We as Christians, we ascribe to the universal religion, to the one that is for all tribes, tongues, and nations. We ascribe to the religion that does not insist that you speak Greek or that you speak Latin, but which translates all of uh, our religious terminology and our language and our scriptures into these other languages because the gospel is for all peoples. Um, and I, it's something that is a remarkable thing. It's, a remarkable, it's remarkable that it grew up in the time in which it did. A religion like that, like a, a newfound religion, perhaps one that came out over the last hundred years or so, would be more inclined, I think, to be Catholic in a similar sense, that is to, to reach multiple peoples, uh, because we live in, in a more unified world. We live in a world where there is a more global sense of humanity having a need to somehow be together. But that was not in play uh, in the first century A.D., in the first few centuries A.D. There, there was no desire in that sense to be Catholic uh, in the various religions. So um, I think it's a, a very fascinating aspect of our faith. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, I mean, just to reiterate, like it's not that's not to say, you know, fascinatingly, uh, like Indonesia has the largest populations of Muslims, and they are not Arabic by heredity, but when they pray, they pray in Arabic. When they read their scripture, they read their scripture, the Quran, in Arabic. That is the only language of the Quran. So it's not to say uh, that they don't, you know, spread to non-Arabic regions. They very much do, uh, but but translation. Um, is just not acceptable um, <laughs> in a way. Yeah, well, I, I made that point, and I mean that's all. I mean, there are obviously Hinduism is in America and in South America. I mean, or I should say, North America and South America and Europe. So most of these religions, the ones that have survived, have taken on a Catholic persona in a sense, meaning again universal, meaning that they are gaining proselytes and they are reaching out beyond their borders. But rather, I guess I'm just saying that. Most religions, the ones that have been around a long time anyway, are historically rooted to a distinct people group. Well, in our own weird way, I mean, Latin became our Arabic for like a while there. Yeah, yeah. we tried to make the church like that. Yeah. Right? I mean, kind of. what's that? Kind of. Uh, I mean, Lamansana wrote a book to kind of uh, critique this idea, but I know where you're going. But yeah, just just in a general sense, the, the liturgy was in Latin until like 
the 1960s. I mean, you know what I mean? At least in the Roman Catholic Church. But going back to when just the church was just the church, you know, it was being done in Latin. And it's kind of, I mean, of course, there are areas where it wasn't. So, yeah, I it's not the exact yeah. same. But well, I just think there's a principle yeah. in us as humans which tries to make which tries to make our religion, not which tries to make everything ethnocentric. Like we want to be with our families and our people groups and our people kinds, like our tribes. And so when we ascribe to a religion, I think there is a principle in us, which generally tries to make our religion more tribal in a sense. And so, I don't know, maybe the use, the insistence on the use of Latin isn't an indicator of this, but I, I think this is just true. I've seen it so many times. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, you know, American missionaries historically or English missionaries who have gone out into other cultures to try to bring the gospel don't just bring the gospel. They try to bring their culture. And they, in their understanding, they think that their cultural version of Christianity is in some sense better, I guess. I've had a similar sense with, uh, um, I mean, again, with Jewish Christians that I've, you know, encountered. Not all, by the way. I'm not trying to pigeonhole, but... I've seen this element amongst Jewish Christians where there can be a tendency to try to Jew- Jewishize in a sense or, yeah. or Judaize, I, Judaize would be more appropriate, the, their Christian practice and to try to bring people into that. Or <clears throat> it seems to me even I've seen with people converting to Eastern Orthodoxy, there's kind of like a Greekifying effect where they're trying to yeah. adopt more of Eastern Greek or of Greek culture. Um, so I do think that there is something about us just as people that tries to extend our culture along with our religion, so to speak, and, and make our religion a part of us. But um, I, I don't think that, that that has won the day. I think Christianity has remained a universal religion in that sense. I should add, I was talking about the old religions having this bent, but you know, many of the new religions do this, this ethnocentric bent. But many of the new religions do as well. I mean, if you think about it, the Mormonism is a distinctly American yeah. religion. Again, they are proselytizers. They want to get people who are not American into the church, into their church. But at the same time, their myth and their language, the use of their scripture, which for them is for the Bible, it's the King James Bible. For you know, it's very American centric. Yeah, that that's true with even our particular Protestant denominations here, which have yeah. flourished in America only. But yeah, that's the interesting thing. Like, I definitely think of Christianity as Christianity in English. Yeah. But it's also because I think and speak in English. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's there is a weird tendency. As much as we can intellectually grasp that it's like a transnational, international religion, we often do think like. Christianity is just European, like, yeah. and it's because it's easy to do. And so, anyway, I will say this is you. You guys are well. We can we can cut this out, but you guys yeah. can make fun of me for a minute. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing. There's like to me. There's always a unique moment when I worship in another language, um, where the language takes on a different character to me. So, like as I was learning German, it was. You know, it was just something I was doing, you know, this game I was playing. But when I went to my first German worship service um, and were, you know, and was part of a prayer, prayer in German, singing worship songs in German, German took on a new 
um, and qualitatively different character. And the same was true for me for, for Latin, for Greek, for Hebrew, for French, you know, whatever. Like it was just every time, you know, the language had a new meaning for me and another language. Uh, and, and, and even maybe worship felt different to me in a different language, which I kind of enjoyed, you know, it was, and, and I, it would, to me, it'd be totally sad if uh, Christianity was, a, 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 you know, was only allowed, as much as I love Latin, yeah, you know, if, if Latin was the only language in which uh, you could worship God. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, obviously I haven't had as much experience with language as you have, but I mean, I've studied Greek, I've studied Latin, I've studied Spanish and German as well and i've had similar experiences when i have um you know listened to services in spanish or um when i've read latin prayers or greek prayers or things like that i've had a very similar experience and i would say that just being able to work in the language like it does change the i I guess the the biases of your mind a little bit, like your mind is no, it breaks free a little bit from the culture, which it thinks through, I guess. I mean, right. I, I don't know what else to say, except for to say that, that my learning of language has a direct correlation on my ability to think of theology creatively, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, yeah, yeah, so that would, that would be our argument for learning languages are, our, our, <laughs> but it wouldn't well, be an argument. I don't know if it's the argument, but one. Or, yeah, sorry. That's right. That would be an argument, not the <laughs> argument. But, but also not an argument to say, you know, that the only way that you understand Scripture is to understand it in the original languages. I would never make that case um, and and hope that, you're, you know, that pastors don't say that that's the only way that you can understand the Bible. Because clearly the import is that, that that's not the only way. Well, we've actually been saying the opposite, right? Yeah. We've been saying the opposite of that. That's... That's kind of the point that when you brought up first Islam being a distinctly Arab religion, Arab scriptures, an Arab name for God, we we use the English word God. And if we're German, we use the word Gott. You know, and if we're uh, Spanish, we use Dios. And all of that is fine. You know, and we use the King James Bible, the New King James, the Reina Valera, the Martin Luther translation. Like, that's all good because we're Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so returning to the De Spiritu Sancto a little bit, one of the other concerns that he has um, is the baptism becomes very central for him. Um, and he makes yeah. some inter- he makes some interesting claims um, that if, in fact, that we are baptized in, and it, it actually it kind of seems like the Arians might not have baptized using the formula from Matthew 28. I think there's a little discrepancy in this, whether or not the Arians, uh, they, they were worshiping in their own churches. Um, and there's some degree disagreement about the extent of this. Uh, but, but Basel seems to say very clearly that, um, as you know, that actually you need to be baptized and the, the formula needs to be in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. Um, I'm, I'm th- the part that I'm thinking of is uh, chapter 26 uh, is one place where he discusses this. Um, but but for him, you know, it, I don't know. This this is an interesting position that he takes because I, I think 
the way that I was raised, baptism was, you know, I was raised Baptist. And so baptism is sort of just a thing that you do. Uh, but the most important part of salvation is, is the is the part where you repent um, and pray to uh, ask God in your life and say that you believe. Uh, but here he says, um, that, uh, and, uh, whether a man, uh, man have departed this life without baptism or ha- have received the baptism lacking in some of the requirements of the tradition, his loss is equal. Um, and so there's a certain kind of loss that you have, um, if you, and maybe even going to hell, if you haven't had the proper baptism, uh, with the epiclesis, uh, and the invocation of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he doesn't speak of damnation per se, but it seemed like that was kind of underlying his claims. Um, I have two sections here regarding baptism. I'd like to reference one is in chapter 26, what you just said. He says, uh, whence is it that we are Christians? Meaning how is it we've come to be Christians through our faith would be the universal answer. I found that interesting because, you know, the debate about faith versus works versus sacraments, it, we really haven't stumbled upon it. Um, but here you do find a reference to this notion of salvation by faith because he says faith would be a universal answer. But then he says, and in what way are we saved? Plainly because we were regenerate through the grace given in our baptism. How else could we be? And then he goes, and after registering that this salvation is established through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, shall we fling away that form of doctrine? So he says that we are regenerated by baptism. Elsewhere, uh, this is uh, chapter 12 or section 28, however you use you know, your references. He says, faith and baptism are two kindred and inseparable ways of salvation. Faith is perfected through baptism. Baptism is established through faith. And both are completed by the same names. And, you know, I was fascinated by this because You know, like you said, Chad, you came from a a Baptist background. I have attended Calvary Chapel, who, aside from from their views on the gifts of the Spirit and the workings of the Spirit, were pretty in line with with the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of church doctrine. Um, And so Calvary Chapel has had kind of a similar stance that, that baptism is a symbol, and it's something you do, but it's not something that you have to do, and it's not something that affects. Uh, let me rephrase. It is something you have to do. Like yeah. I know the pastors I've heard would say something like, you're commanded to do it, therefore you have to do it. But they would say it's not an essential component of your salvation, and it does not lead to new birth. It does not lead to regeneration. Here, Basil clearly says that it does. We are, he says we're saved through baptism, and he describes it as regenerative work. And he says that it's a combination of faith and baptism together. Um, I've been trying, as I was reading that, to think back, and I don't know if you guys can help me, to other texts that talked about the work of baptism, like what it did. There's no question we came across texts that defined baptism as like an ingredient in salvation or as something that affected salvation in a sense. But I don't recall just how... Uh, concrete it got in terms of talking about the role baptism plays in salvation. But I just found it interesting because there's no question that the fathers seem to place a much bigger uh, place in baptism and think, and thought that it had a much bigger role in our salvation 
than evangelicals do today. Now, of course, I'm distinctly referencing evangelicals because um, <clears throat> Catholics have a very high view of the role of baptism, as do Lutherans and many Episcopalians. But anyway, what do you guys think? Well, some of it has to do with... Um... Oh, now I'm blanking. Oh, shoot. I want Well, the Donatist controversy, but that's a little bit... I mean, I guess maybe it's roughly... Well, a little bit after. But there's this question about um, who's baptizing who and whether the baptism is okay, so to speak. Um, and at least Augustine will say, as long as you've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, your baptism is a valid baptism. And so there was a, there's definitely dispute about... Um, yeah, the certain the, the effect of the baptism uh, if it was done by someone who uh, was um, in some way you know out of favor with the Catholic Church or was not in the correct apostolic succession or something like that. But as long as it was done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, it seems to be okay. And this is actually upheld by the Catholic Church today uh, when if a Protestant quote unquote converts. Uh, they actually don't have to be rebaptized. Um, the baptism is considered valid, um, and uh, yeah, I just think that's interesting. Yeah, as long as you're baptized uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, almost any church will count that as valid. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could go through like the whole history of baptism, but I don't know what the. I do wonder why the fathers put. A different emphasis because I I find your questioning fascinating, Tom. Because I wonder, like, because I'm kind of viewing it as a continuum where you have Peter just telling people, "What should I do to be saved?" And he goes, "You know, go home, repent, baptize you and your whole family." So even the children are baptized, and he and you know why Peter's saying things like that. You know, we all could, you know, of course this is its own debate and its own talk and all that. And we can do it exegetical work there. But like there was obviously something being taught to new converts and then how it came to evolve into what it is now. Or it, maybe that's actually the wrong assumption. I assume it kind of evolved into everything that it is now. Maybe it was just one thing the whole time for them. But, you know, we do have this here period right here and it is kind of interesting because we don't I can't remember in the text though where it became like what we're talking about now which is like completely necessary for your salvation it seems um, well there's no question it seems to me from the stuff we've read and just from my studying of history that at no point in the early church was somebody regarded a Christian before they were baptized like that just was not a thing nowadays people are regarded as Christians even though they may not be baptized. For instance, we give communion at my church, and when we give it, we caution people. We say, hey, listen, if you're not a Christian, we encourage you not to take this. Um, but if you are a Christian, even if you, we'll even say, even if you have put faith in Christ here this morning, we invite you to take part in communion. Well, that is just something that was not done. You were not to take part of communion unless you were baptized, period. And um, I find this interesting. You don't mind if I bring up the fact that you were uh, 
recently baptized, right? No, no. Yeah. So Trevor was just baptized, what? Uh, like a month and a half ago? A month and a half ago. But yeah. you would have considered yourself a Christian before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for quite a while, right? Yeah, and I was taking communion, and the church basically said, that's fine. I mean, we know you're a Christian. Yeah. That's kind of the way they put it. Like, you're obviously a Christian. So, yeah. So baptism, as far as I can tell, and so the literature we've read, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, I know we've come across passages in the literature, and I'm sorry, we just have read so much that I don't remember. I, my Your memory just goes so quickly. Um, we've read, I know we've read passages in which the writer tied in baptism with salvation and maybe even implied, I mean, I, I, I seem to remember Many actually, I seem to remember several passages where it implied that baptism was essential for salvation. But I haven't read any writer devote much to a theology of baptism, like what is actually happening, what does it mean, and no doubt the theology of baptism is going to evolve. There is an evolution of the theology behind baptism, but I do know historically, baptism was to go hand-in-hand hand with your conversion. You were baptized at conversion. You were a Christian once you were baptized. And so, yeah. See, and there's also this, ver- this, uh, this is in chapter, let's see here, is this 15? He says, he, he starts to talk about, uh, well, he's objecting to people who are saying something about basically the Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit is mm-hmm. like, basically akin to just the water, essentially, mm-hmm. and just uh, the Spirit's just a, a, a force God's using, but nothing more. Basically, objecting against what we've been talking about this whole time, equating the Spirit with just this um, force of God, basically. And he said, he said, but, let's see here. Um, furthermore, from this to may we... Okay, be apprehended the difference between the grace that comes from the Spirit and the baptism by water, in that John indeed baptized with water, but our Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Ghost. I indeed, he says, baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost with fire. And then he basically says something like, baptism is how we, you know, we are buried with Christ and we... uh, you know, basically enter into his death with him, and then we are resurrected and we're pulled out of the water. So then he says this weird thing right here. And ere now, there have been some who in their championship of true religion have undergone the death for Christ's sake, not in mere similitude, like not in mere just baptism symbol, but in actual fact, and so have needed none of the outward signs of water for their salvation, because they were baptized in their own blood. Yeah. And then he says, thus I write not to disparage the baptism by water, but to overthrow the arguments of those who exalt themselves against the Spirit, who confound things that are distinct from one another, and compare those which admit of no comparison. Actually, I can answer that. I can explain that. Um, Because, and it ties into the very question we're asking, because of this prevailing view that you had to be baptized in order to be saved, and that... If you weren't baptized or if you weren't baptized properly, that implied damnation. So there was some very, there was a lot of concern at the time because of course, you know, there was, you know, the history of the church up until 312 was a history of persecution. 
people were getting killed. And there were many stories which came out of, for instance, centurions who were supposed to aid in the killing of a Christian, converting to Christianity right there on the spot, and then being killed immediately. And it was confusing to many churchmen because the churchmen were saying, you have to be baptized to be saved. And if you're not baptized, then you're going to be damned. And then people would say, then what do you do with these people who were martyred for the faith? Like the greatest accomplishment of the faith, they were martyred, but they were never baptized. Are they damned even though they've exceeded us in this great way? And the response, the answer that, that was devised was they were baptized in their blood. So, so they had gone through a literal dying with Christ, just like, the, just like when people are baptized, there's a metaphoric dying with Christ. So they actually, the church began to count such things as baptisms. So baptism in blood for the sake of martyrdom was a legitimate baptism. Okay, yeah. It, it just also seemed to me like he was, you know, that, that, it, that does make sense, but it also seemed to me like he was using this language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit to say the, the water is, you know, and now I can't get away from saying it the way we're all taught to say it, but the outward sign of the invisible grace within you. Yeah. And because <clears throat> clearly I think what he equates um, baptism with is also the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Like mm-hmm. maybe he thinks these things happen literally at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so for the martyr, but, but yeah, now that, that so that what really matters so that maybe, yeah, because you're right. That chapter is very interesting, right? I mean, he's arguing against the focus on the water. Mm-hmm. And so what he may be arguing is something maybe a little more akin to what a Baptist or a Calvary Chapelite believes than we're giving him credit. Yeah. Because he's saying it isn't the water that matters. It's the Holy Spirit himself that matters. And and look at the martyrs. And look at the yeah. martyrs. They weren't literally baptized, yeah. but they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's yes. a good point. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it in that way. Anyway. Nice. <laughs> um, well, I'm... Um, I'm I'm running low on energy here, and I don't really have much. Else to, I don't really have much else to add. Uh, I so. do have one thing to add. One okay. thing, and it'll be real brief. I just thought it was interesting because he brought up something I that is apparently a heresy from the day that I wasn't aware of, um, and that was the subnumeration of the Godhead. Uh, this the the only thing I could think of is that this must be one of the views espoused by either the Homoians or the Homoousians, because um, he describes it as kind of a, I'm trying to think how to word this, a step down, like going from the more general to the more specific. Like, so for instance, in terms of essences, that is what something is, there is a thing and then there are all sorts of things that are subnumerations of things. Like a table is a subnumeration of a thing. A man is a subnumeration of a thing. A female is a subnumeration of a human, right? And so what he said is, is there's this view that the son is the subnumeration of the father and the spirit is the subnumeration of the son in that similar way that you're, you're moving down the ladder of essences, so just as a woman is a human and a human is an animal and an animal is a thing, the sun or the spirit is of the sun or is somehow a subnumeration of the sun, which is of the father. I've never heard that before. It actually makes no sense to me. Um, 
he made a pretty interesting argument. He said, if this was true, well, then just so you know, that would preserve the essences because the human has the essence of an animal, um, is the essence of an animal. And a female is the essence of a human. So it's like, as you do subnumeration, it preserves the essence. So he said that it kind of worked. He said it kind of works against you anyway. But then he says, but it's also nonsensical to think of the spirit as a sub thing of the father. And then he goes into the fact that the spirit is a different hypostasis. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting. I'd never come across that before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think you explained it well, but I, and it also may sort of be like God, the father is the highest essence. Cause he's the ground of being, you know, well, that's, I mean, technically that phraseology is from Paul Tillich, but, um, you know, he, and then like Jesus is like enfleshed, which is, you know, sort of lesser than the ground of all that is. And then the Holy spirit is just sort of the will. Like, I guess I could see that as a subnumeration or something, but yeah, I'm not, I mean, uh, yeah, I would, I don't, I don't hold to it. Of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> we'll be back again next week. Um, and we will have a new episode on Gregory Nazianzen. Thanks for listening again, and please uh, keep commenting. We'll be back again next week, um, and we will have a new episode on Gregory Nazianzen. Thanks for listening again, and please uh, keep commenting.